Create Out Loud is brought to you by Anchor.fm. And if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast so you can, yes, create out loud. It's free. They give you tools so you can record easily on your phone or your computer. They'll distribute the podcast for you. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started. Because yeah, I want you to create out loud. Hey everybody, welcome back to Create Out Loud. I'm Jen Loudon, your host, and today we're going to have another fascinating, nitty-gritty conversation about the creative life, both from the inside of how do you make stuff, but also how do you market it and how do you make money and all those things we like to talk about to help you be more joyfully, effectively, consistently creative. Now, who is our guest this week? It's Kate Bear. Now, she is a poet whose very first book of poetry and only book in print, her new book comes out in November, debuted number one in the New York Times bestseller list. That's called an instant bestseller. But that's not why I had her on. I mean, I love success and it's really cool to talk to successful people. But I had her on because there's an honesty and a self-trust about her work and how she has navigated her extreme and sudden popularity and how she handles the internet. And we we just have a really great discussion about that that I think you're going to find really useful when you think about promoting your own work and walking that line between what do you do and how much do you do and all that. So, Anyway, without further ado, let's dive in and talk to Kate Bear. One of the things I'm really curious about is what helps you create in the face of what silences so many women? I mean, you've got four kids, you've got a mansplaining internet trolls that like to pop up. You know, what allows you to create despite that? Yeah, that's a great question. And thanks for having me. This is so fun. What keeps me going is that the alternative is so sad The alternative to be quiet, to be silent, to kind of go off the radar, to retreat is such a sad thought. You know, it's tempting a lot of times, but, you know, there's so many different reasons not to write our own, you know, ego, fear of failure. There's so many different reasons, not just internet trolls. And I always just come back to the alternative being really sad. So I think that's what keeps me going. Yeah, it is really sad to think about silencing ourselves most of all. Yeah. You know, another thing I'm fascinated by is how people find their creative forms. You know, sometimes people just lock right on it and sometimes they never find it and sometimes they have to switch. And you said in another interview to write poetry, thought you had to be a grad student smoking a pipe. I went for it. I started writing and I couldn't stop. Was there a moment when the light bulb went on or the self-permission? Because poetry, especially like, oh, poetry. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, right, right. I don't really think it was a moment. I think a lot of times we look for moments, what Mm -hmm. Oprah calls aha moments, which can happen for sure. But what I've noticed is there's most things have come at such a slow burn. No one moment. I think the thing that's so important about that is we can think we're doing it wrong, whatever it is, our creative life, our our life period, if there isn't those moments of aha. But what if those are just reconstructed by our mind after the fact? What if it is over and over again, following those inklings, those moments, paying attention, being here? What brings me alive? What's fresh here? That's the point I made in the Why Bother book. When we find ourselves in Why Bother, maybe it's because we're waiting for the big epiphany, the big clarity to descend, the clear plan path to open up in front of us. That's what keeps us stuck sometimes. 
And I think poetry was like that. You know, I was I was kind of cheating on my novel with poetry very casually. It wasn't like I was like, oh my God, I think I can write poetry. So now I'm going to write this book and pitch it to publishers. It was more like, okay, I'm going to focus a little bit more time to this. I'm going to work on this. It what it, I don't think it was quite a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been moments of gratification and validation and success and happiness for sure. But I wouldn't call that any kind of aha moment. Instead, it was more a slow burn and feeling more and more comfortable in that genre, realizing that the only one holding me back from poetry is myself. It's nobody else. Uh, Nobody else cares if I write poetry or not. It's I'm the one who has to care. So I know sometimes, you know, you kind of want that moment, but it often- I don't think they come very often. And when they do- They're usually in the rearview mirror and it's almost like our brain yeah. decides to make it that moment. Right. right? Of course. Sort of yeah. Because we have, you know, our memories are for, you know, our yes. memories are completely unreliable. Constantly rewriting yeah. history. I'll hear myself say things in interviews and later I'm like, is that even true? Or is that the story I've been telling over and over? Oh uh, God, yes. I, I wrote a lot of personal stories in my last book, Why Bother? And I, I thought that every time I was writing one of them, I'm like, what if this is, <laughs> you know, I'm trying for the truth, but what do I really yeah. remember? Started writing as a blogger and I'm going to use that terrible term that makes me really want to throw up in my throat mommy blogger it occurs to me it might be good to explain what i mean about hating the term mommy blogging i just think it became a way to imprison women and denigrate what they were writing about and to make a category that served some women really well and other women felt hemmed in and once again like whoa you know a way to just say that what we're writing about if we're writing about being a mom and parenting isn't as good as what a man is writing about. So nothing against mommy bloggers per se, but against categories that don't always serve women. It feels like we're always being shoved into some corner. So that's what I meant by that. And then mommy blo- your, your mommy blogging, blogging really took off, but you shut that down and started working on a thriller. And why was there, did it, the form of talking about your own life and being a parent become less satisfying or it felt really tired. I was also living it in such a real way that I was like sick of it. I didn't really want to talk about it anymore. Also, the mommy blogger scene was changing at a rapid pace to something that was very much a good for her, not for me situation. And so I felt like I really need to step back from this. I'm not enjoying it. I'm not enjoying being part of this. What What does that mean? Good for her? Good for her. Not for me. Have you, Amy Poehler says that in her book she has kind of coined that phrase where you don't have to knock other women down. I don't want to say, you know, I don't want to be a mommy blogger and then put all the mommy bloggers down. That's not my intention at all. It was more like, that's fine for them. And I'm happy for them. And I'm happy to cheer the women on who I know who do that, but it's not for me. And I, mm-hmm. I felt that I, it's, this is not for me anymore for so many different reasons. You know, one of those reasons being, there were just all of a sudden, you know, Instagram was becoming a thing and sponsored posts and kind of having to sell yourself as a brand, which we all do that to some extent, myself included, but I, I just wasn't, I did not want to go down that path in that way. I did not want my kids on the internet anymore. There were just so many different things. And also most of all, I just, I wanted to take a break from personal narrative. I felt very burnt out in that after 10 years, I just was not, I I just was ready to take a break and and head into fiction. And it was just the most welcome break. I, I never, I don't want to say I never looked back because 
I certainly still write that at times and, and might, you know, write a book like that in the future, but I just really needed to take a break and I didn't, it felt right, right away. A moment ago, I was thinking about identity and how we identify with ourselves as a certain kind of creator. Do you identify more as a writer who will explore lots of forms in your life? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. People, uh, because I have this book out often, right? Yeah. They introduced me as poet Kate Bear, which is so funny to me because I just started taking poetry seriously, like five minutes ago. Um, (laughs) I've written poetry all my life, but I would have never written that. I would have never said a few years ago, this is what I want to be. And I'm happy to take on that label. It's a beautiful label, but I see myself kind of in any genre. So uh, that's funny that you have not been asked that, but yeah, I, I do feel very open. I never would have predicted poetry. So why try to predict anything else? I don't, I don't know what will come. But I think that is incredibly important and it's really hard for some of us, especially if you've had success, which now you've had incredible success as a poet to let, uh, one of the things I really like about reading about your life and now talking to you is there's this real, there's a real openness and curiosity and almost a fealty, how do you say that word, a a loyalty (laughs) to yourself above the marketplace or the form or does does that ring true or am I projecting all over you? I mean, that's what I try. That's a nice thing to say. That's what I try just because like I said, I never would have predicted this. So if I would have boxed myself out of poetry, uh, I wouldn't have written the last two books. And so I try to keep going on at that pace and just see what happens and try to read as much as I can of all sorts of different genres and be open to where this path leads, wherever it leads. What do you think silences creative women the most? I hear a lot of things about, well, for mothers, I hear a lot of things about childcare, which is absolutely valid. I hear a lot about other people, but I really do think it comes down to ourselves. We are our biggest obstacles, our fear of failure. It's easy to point the blame at other people because in our situations, because that's easier. It's like, well, I can't do this because of X. And then it kind of gives ourselves an out. And I really do think the biggest obstacle to creativity is ourselves and and how we're setting ourselves up. It's very easy to set yourself up for failure in writing. I've done it my whole life in many different ways through just like self-loathing and scheduling and the idea that, oh, I'm going to write when I feel inspired. That will never happen. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm still waiting so for that. Many, 30 years no. later, I'm still waiting for that. Come on, right? inspiration. <laughs> exactly. And so I just, uh, we set ourselves up for failure more than anything else. And that's something I have had to learn the hard way and continue to learn all the time. How are you setting yourself up for success as, as a creative now? Childcare? <laughs> uh, Childcare, yeah. Uh, dedicated work time. Is it easier to take your work seriously now that it's successful? Are you more protective of your work time than you were before? Uh, maybe a little bit. Although the reason this the first book was written was because I really did take myself seriously. And so I don't really think that's changed. It was certainly validation for kind of taking a stance on that. I'm working the same as I was before. It took me a long time to realize that had to happen. 
I was trying to squeeze it in in a, in a terrible times like the evening or, you know, <laughs> I, I was trying to think, well, how can I just kind of do this on the side? Mm. Um, and that's work. I'm sure that works for some people. That doesn't work for me. I can't, I can't do writing on the side. My brain doesn't work that way. I, I can't do that. So it has been a very hard lesson to learn. You know, what Kate just said is I couldn't do it on the side is really worth reflecting about. Maybe this is the idea that you want to take away from this episode. Where are you trying to shove your creative life, your creative work, your creative discipline into the corners? Because there's a lot of advice out there. Oh, you can do it in 15 minutes or just do it wherever you can. And if that's working for you, fantastic. But if it's not working for you, is there a way that you have to take up more space? So that you can get into that flow, which is incredibly good for your brain and your mood and then makes you want to have more flow, which makes you want to work more and can really make the whole creating process a lot more juicy. So do you need a dedicated space or time? Do you simply need more time and space? And you may be shaking your head going, of course I do. Do you know how many jobs I'm working or do you know how much I'm dealing with caretaking or anything else? So I I get it. I've been there. I'm not there right now, but I totally get it. I've been there for years and years. And still, it's just something to reflect on. But I think I've learned it. Yeah. So many one thing more, I've... Many more lessons to learn. I hear a lot from creative women about guilt. Now, you have four kids. Your oldest is... Ten. Nine? Almost ten. ten. In your dedicated time at Panera or wherever you go now, <laughs> do you wrestle with an internal dialogue of I should be with them instead? Or is that just like, are oh, you got to be kidding me? No, this is my time. I relish it. I love it. Yeah, I think sometimes I did. I, were, I wrote two books in Panera in the parking lot. We moved two months ago and I have my own office. That's where oh, I am yay! now. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I did. I have had times of that for sure, especially when I'm up against a deadline and I'm working five days a week. I feel bad, not because I think I shouldn't be working, but because I know the toll it takes on my kids when I'm away. It's not that that's wrong or right. I think that's just part of motherhood. I have a lot of conversations with women and my friends who are constantly struggling with this. And I think what we've come to realize is that feeling is not going to go away. There's no perfect situation here you're always losing something I don't really feel guilt I just feel that feeling of oh this is a lot I'm working a lot and so there's something that's missing out here and that's just part of it you really can't have it all you can just have some at some times and you know I I try to do my best to have a good work-life balance that that can't always happen because that's just not the reality of writing before under deadline. No. Um, And also it's not the reality of balance. I mean, balance is fluid and we have this little thing that we balance on to strengthen our ankles for running and you're always falling off. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I, I do feel like when I had my fourth, which was an accident unplanned, I do feel like I was kind of pushed off a ledge where I really don't often feel guilty about leaving my kids because it was so difficult. I was very depressed. I felt very weighted down. I've had to spend a lot of time, you know, reclaiming, you know, my physical body, my my mental energy, my work. And so I don't feel the guilt that I did maybe in early on in motherhood with maybe my first kids. Now I don't feel that way. And I, again, I also think that's fluid how you're feeling as a mother. It just changes. I'm also getting older. I'm getting into my later thirties. And I think maybe in my late twenties, I felt a little bit differently, which I think is normal. One of the things that I find fascinating is how even in this 
time, it is so hard for some women to admit that raising kids is difficult. Like that, of course you love them and you love it, but it is the hardest thing that anyone ever does. Do you get backlash about talking honestly about parenting in interviews like this and in your poems or in general, are people more like, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Every once in a while, I would say the most overwhelming response is me too. But mm. yeah, every once in a while that does happen. I think most mothers can identify with that feeling, probably pretty universal. So yeah, for the most part, no, I don't, I don't find that. But I also really try to tune out that noise as much as I can. And, and do you do that by not spending much time on social media? Yeah, since I've written this second book, I really have spent a lot less time there. It's very emotionally draining for me, the good and the bad. And so I have really tried to step back. It was really starting to affect my mental health and writing. So I did really have to take a step back from that. Yeah. Is it getting sucked into approval that's difficult? Because I find that's more addictive I mean, the yeah. bad, the bad reviews definitely can make me really stomp around my office and say some yeah. mean things, but I think sometimes it's the approval or that sticks me more and makes me kind of get caught in that. Okay. How can I make more of that? Or Absolutely. That, that, that is the biggest addiction and trying to, the, the way Instagram works and social media works and the algorithm works is constantly improving your following you just kind of get stuck in the cycle of I have to keep performing here so that people mm-hmm. keep listening to what I have to say and buy my books. And that is just such, I don't know, a toxic place to be. And we, and I have to stay there to some degree, but I've really started to pull back because I don't think it's helping the work. I think it's taking away from it and ultimately hurting, hurting me and, and, and hurting what I'm doing. And so yeah, I just have really pulled back. I do feel bad because I have a lot of people that want to talk to me, which is wonderful. And I, so many kind messages, but I can't reply to them all, or I will spend all day, every day doing that. That's just, it's taking away from what I'm trying to do for every, not for everyone, but you know what I'm saying? I I can't, I can't write another book if I'm spending all day going back and forth and trying to give people writing advice or publishing advice and engaging about what this poem means and what that poem means. We, we can get so close to our, to anyone now, you know, we can, social media has given us access, myself included, to celebrities and writers and artists. And that's so wonderful. And yet it also is a burden. And that is something I've tried to grapple with. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword because I've had so many incredible positive interactions. I've also had some really negative ones. And then the in-between just really bogs me down, which is just looking through what people are sending me um, and trying to figure out what is worth, not worth responding to, but what, what do I have the emotional energy for? I get stuck in the cycle of guilt and wanting to say thank you because I'm so thankful, but also protecting my time. I also resent social media companies for their own bottom line or creating the standards that I have to, you know, sit up like a little dog and bark, you know, yes, yes. Trying to find that medium place of creating value for people and promoting your own work authentically without feeling like you're just caught in this gerbil wheel. I'm coming up on doing press for a second book here that I'm going to get asked a lot about the internet. I have, haven't really 
worked on my speech yet, but I feel like I'm going to have to come up with something to say that is smart and concise because often I feel really rambly and really because I'm so hot and cold with it. And then I feel, I don't know, I just get angry. And then that's, that's not really what I want to come across as, you know, I'm not, I'm not really angry at Instagram and I'm not angry at the people who are following me. I'm not even that angry at people who write unkind messages to me. I think I'm just angry on behalf of everyone that we're caught in this cycle where we're having to perform, where we are are saying things we don't actually mean, when we're spreading misinformation, myself included, so easily. That's what I'm angry at. And then that just doesn't ever come across well. So I guess I need to dedicate time to that. You know, you could just listen to this part again and transcribe it. <laughs> you, just, you just did a great job because part of it is it's a nuanced conversation. Oh, yeah. And part of what book tours don't allow for too often are nuanced conversations. Yeah. And the sound bites are not conducive to changing the landscape that we find ourselves in. So speaking of the new book of poetry, do you think you could read a poem from it for us? From the new book? Oh, sure. Okay. Well, how about the new book and the old, the old book? <laughs> That's true. right. So the new book is one side of the page are messages or um, comment threads, or I also have Brett Kavanaugh here to the Senate Judiciary Committee. They don't They're hard to read well. because I have to read. Would you like me to read the original? Sure. This is from Chad. That's not his real name. This is the message he sent. I think it's funny how much you hate men and then go ahead and have this husband like he doesn't apply. Not buying your book, but if I was, I would get it for my daughters to show them how not to be. Even though you'll never see this, it's worth sharing that not all women think like you or believe men are inherently against women. They might even say they appreciate men. Can't fathom this? Maybe read a book outside your what kind of woman bubble. Sincerely, a man who believes his daughters can be both independent and polite. And here is the poem that goes with it, using his words. It's funny how men go ahead and have daughters, even though they can't fathom what daughters can be. I just, yeah, I can feel that. That's why I wanted to talk to you. (laughs) It's exactly (laughs) that. It's exactly that. Do you feel that when you read it back or is it so familiar to you now you don't, don't yeah, have fierceness been, for a lot of that has dissipated only because when you are writing a book, you have to read things over and <laughs> so over again. Many times. So I I I don't feel that anymore. Um, the power in what he has to say has really gone away for me. I guess if I really thought about it and sat with it, I could get mad again. <laughs> but for mm-hmm. now, I kind of feel like I had the last laugh. So I don't feel that much of it that much anymore. This is an interesting form because I haven't seen the new book yet. I mean, it's in the mail somewhere. Tell me about the idea of call and response almost of responding to comments. Because it's interesting off of our di- our shared diatribe about the internet, <laughs> right? The, the Some of that actually seems to have fueled the form of this book. Yeah, I never meant to publish a book one year after the first one. I didn't ever thought I would do erasure poetry. It wasn't something I ever did before. Again, I just was a surprise. Just like the first one, I it started last summer uh, during a particularly difficult time uh, in, in our history. George Floyd had just been murdered and things were very hot, very contentious. I posted some things about police reform. A woman wrote to me pretty angry and just on a whim, uh, I didn't even think about it. I looked at the message. Usually I delete messages like that. Kind of was looking at it and just, 
it kind of rearranged in front of me. And so I took a screenshot and I blotted it out and I posted it and that the response to it was so overwhelming, just showed me there are so many people at odds with other people on the internet and in their personal lives. And I kind of kept doing that. It felt like just like a party trick. And I started seeing poems everywhere, you know, billboards and my spam email, just kind of taking words from things and making new pieces with them really, it really took off. I was asked to write a book of them. I said no two or three times. I don't want to do this. I don't want to look at messages like this. It was, it felt too difficult. I was talked into it. (laughs) It was, it was hard. It was really, it was like COVID. I was quarantined. I was homeschooling my kids when I really didn't want to do that. (laughs) Uh, Trying to write in parking lots, borrowing Wi-Fi because I didn't have my own office. It was a very dark time, to be honest, writing this book not just because of the content, but what was going on around me. Mm-hmm. I, I'm happy with how it turned out. I think there is something to be said just about this moment in time, reading it. It was not something I intended to do, but yeah, it's, it's turned out really cool. What I take from that or what I feel is how as an artist and creatives, it's not always about fun or pleasant. It's this thing is presenting itself and am I going to grapple with it or not? And no right answer. Yeah but you grappled with it. How does that different than your first book? Was it a completely different experience? Yeah, it was a completely different experience. The first book, and I know this sounds cliche, felt like something that I had wanted to write and had to wanted to write and had inside me for so long. I sat down to that book and it just came. It was hard to write at times, of course, and there were moments of doubt and writer's block and all the things that come with writing a book. But it felt like it was there all along. It felt like something that I had been writing around for a long time, writing thrillers and personal narrative and writing all these, taking all these themes that I was writing around for a long time and then finally just saying it, and, which is such a wonderful thing about poetry. You really get to the point quickly. It was very fun to write only because it felt like scratching an itch that had always been there. <laughs> you know, so many different guests on this podcast have talked about that. Like there's this way about the creative process where we're circling. Hey, the episode that I was trying to think of is the episode with Lisa Cron, who's a story coach and writer about story in the brain. It's a really interesting episode. And she talks about how there can be this crater that we're sort of circling around. So just another possibility to listen to that. And also the screenwriting gals talking about their process. That has some real good stuff about how do we get to the meat of what we're trying to say. Not that there's any great, like, you know, shortcuts, although I think allowing ourselves to know that we get to have a point and allowing ourselves to claim it and be bold. Sometimes I give writers the prompt, what am I most afraid of? Or if I wasn't afraid, or what I really want to say here is, and then I have them write about that for a while, make a list. And then what I really don't want to say is, oh, that's a good one. But now that I've given you the prompts and told you that they're powerful, you may need to be tricked into actually discovering what your real point is, in which case you should come to one of my retreats because that's one of the things I do, finding out what is your real point. What Kate points to is that permission to claim it and own it. What what do you really want to say? And I just love that she feels like it clicked in and she finally got to say it. So what's that click might it be for you? And, And you may not be a writer, right? So maybe it's an image or maybe it's a style or maybe it's, you know, the subject matter. 
and some, and whether it's circling what the project is really about or finding the form to get to what we really want to say, I just like, what is it about our brains that want to not let us go there? Yeah, I know. And it's, it's frustrating and so hard to describe. People ask me for advice and I feel like the last person on earth because I circled <laughs> the drain for so long. So I don't know what to say. I guess you have to just do that. I, mm-hmm. I don't know any shortcuts. I only know the hard way. <laughs> did the title for the first book, What Kind of Woman, did that come before you started writing in the middle no. or afterwards? No, it was called Another Bird Entirely when I submitted it. Um, Wait, the title was Another Bird Entirely? Yeah, which was a line from one of the poems. Yeah, I like that too. Yeah, and uh, my editor picked out What Kind of Woman, which is part of another poem, and it just felt like it fit really well. So, Do you want to read us a poem from that book? Oh, sure. I I never pick ahead. I just kind of, yeah, well, wherever my finger stops. Actually, I can read (laughs) it. I can read the poem uh, where the title comes from. It's called Some Nights. Some nights she walks out to the driveway where the lilacs bloom and lies down on the warm pavement, even though the neighbors will see and wonder what kind of woman does such things. There she stares up at the slender moon and thinks about the baby albatross filled with discarded spoons or the time a friend asked what she was working on these days and she answered, who has the time, even though she meant something else entirely. Across the lawn, the crickets sing while the earth lets out its tired breath and wanders through the trees to greet her. Mm. It does feel really different than the new book, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, these are full length poems and uh, kind of a full length collection of poetry while this, the second one is kind of a little baby book. That's what I call her. She's, she's just tiny, a little baby book and, uh, Um, kind of addressing internet culture with these erasure poems, which was, yes, a very different process because I only had the words people gave me. I I couldn't make up my own words. Yeah, which is also great to have those restrictions. I mean, annoying, but also it takes over that. It takes away some of that fear of choosing so when you're writing the, we'll call them the big poems, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. can you take me into that process a little bit? Do you collect words? Do you write notes to yourself throughout the day? I write little phrases, little bits and pieces of conversation. If I'm reading a book and I see a word that I love, I write that down to use for later. Yeah, I read as much as I can. I kind of use that dedicated work time to kind of take all those pieces and, and put it together. Some pieces took me 15 minutes. Other ones took me a few months or longer, which is always frustrating. <laughs> and sometimes I've just realized, you know, that's for a different time. I have lots of half half poem. It's kind of a process that's hard to describe because I'll read poems like I just did and I'll think I have no idea how I wrote that. I, mm-hmm. If that makes any sense, it kind totally. of happened, but I don't really remember it. I don't remember writing out that poem like that. I think it it kind of just happened and I so hard to describe how that comes together. It's almost like you're writing with one eye shut, if that makes any sense, or without really looking at it. (laughs) Yeah, it's almost Uh, like you don't want to look, the feeling that I get is I don't want to look too closely. I don't want to think too much. Exactly. There's almost a a letting go or relaxing that has to happen. But when you talk about reading a lot and and paying attention, it it feels like what I know is that's going into my body and into my brain that I can call on when I need to. 
Do you, when you're writing, do you get lost in flow? Do you, or is that a, is that a rare thing? Sure. Yeah. Have you seen the movie Soul? You know, I haven't. I haven't. You should watch it. It's to. all about that. It's literally about that. Yes, I do. I, I absolutely love that feeling. It's like a high and I love it and live for it and will do anything to have it. It's addicting. It is. It's really like what's going on in your brain is, yeah. it's like the optimal brain conditions when you're in yeah, it's so frustrating to have, let's say, three days of work and have it not happen. I feel very, it's probably my lowest points in writing is when I spend days trying to get it and can't and can't find it, which is usually a signal to me that I just need to read. That kind of jolts me back. But yeah, I do. I love that. So and who are some of your poems. favorite poems, uh, poets you've been reading lately or books or novels or Oh my goodness. Whenever someone asks me, I can't think of a single book I've ever read. I can't think, have I ever read a book? I don't know. I don't know anybody's name. I know anyone who I enjoy. I don't know. I'm actually reading an incredible book right now. (laughs) Animal by Lisa. I don't know how to say her last name. Tato. 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 Yes. Yeah. I would say Tato. She wrote Three Women. Three Um, three Women. She's become a friend of mine, even though I obviously can't pronounce her last name. Tato. You know, you don't don't say, you don't say things out loud and then kind of in, in uh, <laughs> interviews, I always get tripped up like, oh, good. I don't know what the, how to say her name. Me too. Lisa's book is called Animal. It's a novel. I'm, I l- absolutely love it. I also just read the new Miriam Toe's book, Tao's book. She's a Canadian writer. She wrote Women Talking and she came out with a new book called Fight Night. That comes out this fall. Incredible book. Before that, I had such a long streak of not reading. I was moving. I felt terrible. It's almost like if I don't read for a while, I start to feel sick to my stomach over it. Like I can't like, what am I doing? Just read something. And then I can't find and I'm trying and I don't like this. And having these two incredible books uh, has been such a gift. I have really been in the flow. My all-time favorite writer is Margaret Atwood, but uh, as far as poets go, Wanda Coleman and Sharon Olds, Mary Oliver, Maya Angelou, just incredible women writers who have put out some work that is life-changing. Yeah. When the pandemic started and people were like, I can't even read a book. That was all I was doing. Same. It was like, I I need to escape this world right now. And how can you not be reading? Like I'm spending way too much time in bed reading when you can't find that thing that is exactly what you need in that moment. It is a terrible feeling. Yeah. What did you read in the pandemic? I read some incredible books. Can I remember that? I have to go back and look. Well, I but I can think of some times when we were really housebound that I was like, that's all I did. Like I read the Dutch house then and a few other like big books that I hadn't read that were so good. You know, you know, when people tell you to read this book over and over and then you're kind of like, well, I'm not going to read that. Stop telling me. <laughs> like, I, I tell I, I'm like, please stop. I don't, I'm telling you to read the Dutch house. And I read it and I was like, oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I didn't read the Da Vinci Code for so long. I didn't read the Da Vinci Code for like until like 15 years later. And then I finally read it. And I was like, hey, have you read the Da Vinci Code? Well. <laughs> I read that been like three movies. What are you talking about? And I'm like, no, but it's really good. So I'd like to ask this last question of everybody. What will you learn next? Oh, I love that question. Well, it's hard to predict what you will learn. I guess it's more like what I want to learn. Mm, That's Um, a good, that, you know, I got that from Kristen Neff. She said the same thing. I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I should change the question. (laughs) Because I can't really know what I'll learn. Uh, I can't really guess that. I don't know. I hope I learn. (laughs) I hope I learn to, to tune out some of the pressure as we talked about to plug in and 
constantly promote myself. I feel like I have, like I said, pulled back and I'm learning that, but I don't feel like I've learned it yet. I feel like I'm in the process of balancing that. And I hope that a year from now or two years from now or five years from now, if I ever get the privilege of being on podcasts or in interviews again, that I can say that I've learned that. That's what I would love to learn all the way. And maybe there's no way to do that because internet and social media and all that is constantly changing. I would love to find boundaries that are more, that are easier for me to, to follow. That That's what I hope. And as, as far as learning right with writing, my favorite artists are the risk takers, the ones who uh, just pick up and do something totally different. And I hope I can, I hope I can keep doing that. That is something that I would, I hope I continue to learn over and over the rest of my life that it's okay to switch. And it doesn't matter if people are expecting another this or another that people expected me to keep writing motherhood essays and I stopped and it was really hard. I got a lot of pushback for that and it was wonderful, but now I'm going to be stuck in this. And so Mm -hmm. I hope I keep learning that. I I don't think that's something you can just learn and then (laughs) never have to learn again. I'm someone who has to learn lessons over and over. So I hope that's something I keep learning. Me too. All those things. (laughs) (laughs) Kate, thank you for writing your poems and thank you for taking time to talk to us. It was delightful. This was a wonderful uh, interview. Thank you so much for having me. Wasn't that a great final guest to have for the end of our first season of Create Out Loud? I'm so proud of myself for really asking myself my own question of why bother. I believe that when we listen to what we desire, it may not get us anything that we want. It may, but it may not, but it brings us alive. It helps us grow and that's what I'm dedicated to. We have a bonus for you. My lovely producer, Jeff Graham, sat down with me and asked me some questions about what I learned from doing this season. And, you know, it was really fun to be asked that, but then, of course, as soon as we were done recording this bonus episode, I was like, but I didn't talk about that person, and I didn't talk about that (laughs) takeaway. I just feel so grateful to get to be in conversation with these amazing women and their creative lives. So stay tuned for that bonus next week. And oh, oh, here's, here's the cool thing. I got a question for you next week and I got a gift, a question and a gift. So stay tuned, listen for that question and get your gift because I really need your help with season two. It would be so amazing to have your input. And in the meantime, what are you going to take away from Kate? What are you going to take into your heart and your creative toolkit? And who can you share it with? I really think that we need to be good creative citizens in the world. And we can do that by, hey, we can do it by buying each other's work, by doing Amazon reviews and podcast reviews. We can do it by just sharing things that we've learned or just giving somebody a thumbs up. You know, like, hey, you're going to have a great creative day. And I listened to this podcast and I learned this thing. And I'm not giving you advice because like, advice. But I thought you might be interested in this. So anyway, being good creative citizens, something I'm always working on. I'll see you next week for our little bonus episode with that question and that gift. And in the meantime, I know you know exactly what to do. Create out loud. Thank you.